Hi everyone, welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Sarah Lockwood, a senior associate in the real estate team. And I'm joined today by Tim Lieber, partner, and Dave Palmer, senior associate from our employment team. Thanks both for joining us. Tim and Dave are here to talk about Cheapy. Specifically, they're going to give us a quick guide on what the real estate sector needs to know about the basics of Cheapy and the circumstances where we need to think about Cheapy whilst working on different types of real estate transactions. Tim and Dave will run through some specific examples and share with us some top tips for dealing with Cheapy risks. So, Tim, what is Cheapy and why should our real estate clients care about it? Thanks, Sarah. Nice to be here today. Thanks for inviting us along. Everyone should care about Chupi. Chupi is an important thing, actually, um, and it's often overlooked in the real estate context, or at least it's overlooked until very late in the day. And that's a point in time at which people have less bargaining position than they might otherwise have had. So, so the quest for myself and Dave today is to try and encourage real estate clients to start thinking about Chupi earlier on in the process and do the legwork to get there. But, but what is it? So, Chupi stands for the Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employment Regulations. And that's from 2006. The clue is in the title there. It's about protecting employment. And so as a piece of legislation in our world, the employment law world, that's focused on guarding the rights of employees in circumstances where there's a business or asset sale or also in other circumstances of an outsourcing, insourcing or change in service provider. A bit more about that in a minute. It's originally from Europe um, under the Acquired Rights Directive. Chupi is our local implementation of it. So for real estate uh, clients who operate throughout Europe, they may be familiar with it through other guises in Germany and Spain and France and the like. But we have gold plated it a little bit in the UK, and that's both good from a certainty perspective, but it also causes some challenges because it brings Chupi into worlds where previously people tended to assume that it wasn't relevant. That was the whole point of the gold plating, to give some certainty on that. What does it do? Well, where Chupi bites, what it says is, whichever are those employees who are assigned to the relevant part of the business or the relevant contract that's transferring, their employment transfers along with it. And so when you're selling a business, you're selling assets, or you're transferring a contract, those employees working in connection with those assets or contracts may also transfer to the employment of the transferee. It's not just people, though. It's, it's liabilities as well and obligations. And that's the bit where the risk comes in predominantly because a transferee doesn't necessarily know what they're inheriting and what degree of risk there is. And, and Dave's going to talk a bit about that later. And also in circumstances where employees are dismissed in connection with the transfer, those liabilities can, can add up quite quickly. They're automatically unfair dismissals where people are dismissed because of the transfer, and that liability can also transfer over to a transferee. And, and that's where you start getting a bit worried about not only quantum of that sort of thing, but also reputation associated with those sorts of claims. Chupi also got some other bells and whistles provisions that require consultation to uh, be undertaken with representatives of the relevant employees, or at the very least, information to be provided to them. And so what happens if you close your eyes and ignore it and you get it wrong? Well, if you're the transferee, the person who's inheriting the contract or buying the assets, you could also find yourself inheriting a whole load of employees and accrued liabilities for historic actions, including discrimination, unpaid wages, awards for failure to inform and consult, that sort of thing that can all come to your doorstep. If you're the transferor, you're largely sitting pretty, actually, because the majority of risk gets pushed over to the transferee in a cheaper situation. So if you happen to be a client who's uh, the transferor in a scenario, 
maybe you do want to be a bit quiet and listen until somebody raises the point. That's not our general advice. It's better that these things are dealt with commercially uh, on a relatively open basis. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. That's what we're dealing with, Chupi, transfer of undertakings, protection of employment regulations. Great, thank you. So it's a real, uh, really important issue, a potential banana skin as well. Dave, please can you explain some real estate specific scenarios where Chupi potentially comes into play? Sure thing. So the primary circumstance is when there's a change of service provider and we have a service provision change. So say we've got a property that's being sold, there's an incumbent third party property manager, has some subcontractors with cleaners and security, the usual stuff. Services that are provided, they're focused on the common parts rather than tenanted areas. And that service provider and its subbies, they're going to be replaced by a new property manager who's going to be providing fundamentally the same services. This should be a service provision change and trigger CHIPI. And CHIPI would apply to transfer the employment of the employees and certain liabilities relating to them. Those employees that are assigned to the services at the property, they transfer from the incumbent managing agent and any of the subcontractors to the new managing agent and any of its subcontractors. However, this is all subject to an important back case law that we're going to talk about later on in the podcast, um, and it's definitely one of the, the, the trickier areas. It can also apply on straightforward when there's an asset sale. So this is a bit less frequent, but still possible. Um, so let's say that the real estate in question is being sold effectively as a going concern, possibly a shopping mall, service departments, something like that, but maybe just simply as a building. But it's got direct employees of the seller carrying out the roles in respect of the asset and the businesses. So classic example is a security guard or a building manager, someone similar. Also, although it's still less frequent, um, we could have chippy applying where a landlord leases a property to a company operating as a business. The lease is terminated because the tenant isn't paying the rent. And then the landlord then steps in to run the business for whatever reason. Could have chippy there point worth flagging is that Chippy does not apply if the business does not retain its identity before and after the termination of the lease. So, for example, got a lease with McDonald's, McDonald's ter- the lease is terminated, uh, a new lease is entered into with, say, JD Sports. Well, they're two very different businesses. You're not going to get a transfer of undertakings applying there. So, a common issue that comes up for us with our commercial clients due to the value of the transactions, uh, they will ask us, well, well, why is Chippy important? So, if you think about a seller or a buyer in the context of a multi-million pound asset purchase, but there being only a handful of potential transferring employees, well, the financial liabilities that could arise from Chippy, they're often disproportionately low, especially when the transferring employees might be those of the managing agent or its contractors, rather than that of the buyer or the seller. So at law, the risk to them is, is quite low. It's a good question that we get asked this by our clients, but making sure personnel are dealt with respectfully, it goes to managing reputational risk and other points of principle. I say this as a point of principle because if, you, if a seller reveals to a, buy, a buyer at the 11th hour that there are employees who may or will to be transferred, the buyer may simply say, quite rightly, on principle, why on earth should I consider the liability for tippy risks or costs that you've revealed to me so late in the day? Why should I shoulder them? Now, of course, Saying that there's only a small number of employees does not mean the potential liabilities are low. And this is because the risk that transfer across can have uncapped liability. So, for example, discrimination claims, whistleblowing claims. If there are significant numbers of employees, and by that I'm saying 20 or more at one establishment, well, things can get quite bad um, if the employees are made redundant without notification being made to the Secretary of State. And that's because the directors and the management of that company can have personal liabilities. Penalties are quite severe, including criminal charges. So you don't want to be the company that hasn't considered what's happened with the employees 
realises you've got 20 or more and dismisses them all as redundant. It's not a good situation to be in. And as Tim and I will always say, it should not be difficult to sort out employee and 2P issues on real estate transactions, provided that there's the right planning and sufficient time is given to address these considerations at the outset. Okay, thanks very much, Dave, for that. So how should our real estate clients approach matters relating to 2P on real estate transactions? I'll take that one if I may. It's really just a question about being organised. It's as simple as that. Uh, it's about being on the front foot and having the issue of employees on the agenda from the early discussions. You need to know which employees are involved in connection with the asset, be that security, be that reception, be that cleaners, be that property managers. And all we have to do is, is ask the right questions through our due diligence, make sure that we're not focusing purely on asset-related diligence. The sorts of places you want to look, in addition to asking the question of the vendor or the incumbent service provider, you might want to see what the current supplier contracts have got in them in terms of Chupi. You want to understand how services are provided, whether there are dedicated employees who provide services at the property in question. You want to see what's in the contract as it relates to Chupi. Some of these contracts deal with Chupi up front and say, we will ensure that on termination of this contract, none of our staff transfer pursuant to Chupi. It might be because they want to retain the staff or it may be because that was the bargaining position of the parties at the time. Now, you can't contract out of Tupi, but what you can do is organise the services in such a way that Tupi is less likely to apply as at the point of transfer. So you redeploy the individuals to a different premises. If you're a cleaning company, you want to keep your talent. All you do when you lose one contract is assign them to a new one. And there should be no Tupi transfer in that circumstance. So you want to see what protections already exist. And you also want to see for whose benefit those protections endure, because sometimes if they're properly drafted, they will endure for both the existing client or recipient of the services and any successor or the existing owner or any successor owner. In those circumstances, provided that appropriate third party rights provisions are in play, you may already have your indemnification sitting in that contract. That might not be enough for you commercially. You want that back to backed by a seller in such a large transaction as well. But that's really what you're looking to do. I mean, I talked there a little bit about reassignment as an option of, of mitigating the risk of individuals coming over under 2P. You've got to try and work out where your bargaining position is, who has leverage over whom in any given circumstance, so that notwithstanding what any contracts say, and notwithstanding what the default position would be under 2P if we don't do anything about it, is there any commercial pressure that can be brought to bear on parties to make this issue go away or to dilute the impact of this issue or to provide indemnities. And that might mean looking at what relationships exist now or may exist in the future. So if there happens to be a current provider and you use that provider in other properties or they're keen to pitch for work of yours in other properties, then there's some commercial leverage for you there. Think about it as yourself as a new recipient of the services. Are there other services that you could be talking about with them in terms of a go forward basis? So it's not just the seller or the current client who should be looking at their bargaining position, but also the new client coming in as well. What's the probability that the supplier actually wants to retain the staff in any event? Get on the front foot, ask those questions. If they have a talent pool and they've sufficiently upsourced them, maybe they've got security clearances in particular instances, they may wish to retain those staff in any event. So that should be a relatively easy conversation. And as I say, while you can't contract out of Tupi, you can allocate financial responsibility and mitigate risk through various processes. And of course, a full suite of warranties and indemnities that you can negotiate into the transaction documentation. 
So you should be able to achieve your ultimate commercial position through the contract, notwithstanding what the other contracts and the default provisions of GP say. Okay, thanks, Tim, for that. You mentioned earlier that there are some more difficult GP issues. Please, could you just briefly explain those? Sure, I'll take this one. So Tim and I do lots of chippy work. And if there's one sector where this issue comes up, it is actually real estate. There's this strange case. Now, as a reminder, what I said earlier on is that a service provision change occurs where a client receives services from one provider and then a new service provider replaces the incumbent provider. And that's the service provision change. There's an interesting point about whether Chippy applies when both the service provider's changing and the client's changing at the same time. And the case is called Hunter and McCarrick, and it says that Chippy does not apply when that happens. So this scenario comes up quite often in real estate transactions. The common example, in my experience, is that the seller has a contract with a managing agent. The seller sells the property to a buyer. The buyer appoints its new different managing agent to manage the property and this all takes effect at the same time at completion. Now in the example I just gave factually speaking there is a service provision change the managing agent is changing from one to another so it looks like chippy however because the client is also changing at the same time from seller to buyer that means that it's not the same client receiving the services before and after the service provision change and that is what the case of Hunter and McCarrick says will not be a chippy transfer. So the key point about this is, is timing. If the managing agent remains in place for a period of time after completion, then the rule from Hunter and McCarrick does not apply. This is because the client does not change at the same time the service provision change occurs. Um, and this could happen, and I've seen it happen in practice, where there's a period of handover and the buyer takes on the existing uh, managing agent for a very short period of time before appointing its own preferred managing agent. Slightly strange quirk of the law, but for now it, it holds. Um, and the key point, of course, about all of this is that regardless of what the case law says, uh, the parties must provide for the two risks in the transaction documents and have a think in advance about how they're going to deal with the employees. Yeah, so that's the fundamental point here is notwithstanding what the case law currently says, and that may be subject to change, and notwithstanding what the parties interpret Tupi as doing in a given situation, everybody should have contractual certainty in the eventuality that that's just wrong for one reason or another. The other area which is prime to cause difficulty on a go-forward basis is a, a European case called Govert. It was, a, I think it was a Belgian case. Took place just before Brexit. So unfortunately, it is part of UK retained law. And worse still, the Employment Appeal Tribunal in the UK has upheld the decision and says that the same principles apply in a service provision change as they do in an asset transfer in this particular circumstance. The one that I'm talking about is this, and it's horrible and completely unworkable in practice, which is where there is a contract that is fragmented. Some services are fragmented and split across two or more providers rather than being provided by one service provider. Where before that transfer, there was an individual who was engaged across each of those elements of service. The EU case law says, actually, that employee can be split across the new employers. So in other words, you have a single employee who was employed by a single employer, where the work that they're doing is then shared out across more than one provider on a go forth basis. Then at law, says the European Court of Justice, that employee becomes a part time employee of each of the three new service providers or two or however many there are. Now, I can see all kinds of problems with that, particularly from an antitrust and competition perspective, a breach of confidentiality. 
being pulled in too many different directions, working time regulation. It's simply unworkable at law. So the simple answer to that is deal with it in the contract. Make sure that you're aware of these risks and make sure we are aware what happens, what processes will be undertaken in the unlikely event that anybody raises that as a question. Okay, great. Thanks very much both. That's been really useful. So to draw these points together and by way of summary, the key takeaway points in relation to Chupi for real estate clients are, so the first point is that it's fairly common for there to be a Chupi issue on real estate transactions when there is a transfer of a business or more commonly when there's a change of service provider. Secondly, when Chupi applies, any assigned employees and or certain related liabilities will transfer from the transferor to the transferee. These Chupi risks are usually addressed in the transaction documents on a customary basis. Chupi risks should be assessed and dealt with ahead of time, this is a key point, as this usually makes it easier for the risks and practicalities to be addressed without difficulty. This is the case even if employee numbers are low and potential financial liabilities are not considered material in the context of the overall transaction. There are also operational and reputational risks to consider if Chupi is left to the last minute or not dealt with until after completion of the transaction. Finally, there can be some difficult points that arise when there is a service provision change and if a the client of the services is changing at the same time as the service provider is changing and b employees are part assigned to services that are being split across several new service providers those situations definitely require specialist input from employment lawyers such as tim and dave tim and dave thanks both very much for your time today and thanks all for listening to this podcast we really hope you found it useful If you'd like any further information on any of the issues discussed today, please do get in touch. Thank you.